The scripture reading this morning is Matthew 1, 21 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after they had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Good evening. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Looking tonight at this same passage that we looked at on Sunday, if you were here, and um, I want to focus especially in the section where you see the bolded words. You just heard it read. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And whether you've been around church or not, those words are probably familiar to you. You've heard them. They're kind of common in the culture. And this, one of the most difficult things about Christmas worship is the familiarity of the words can kind of lull you to sleep almost, take you to this sentimental, feel-good place, and you miss what's really being said. Uh, many of you know my favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. And must have seen it, you know, a couple dozen times every year, sometimes multiple times in the same year. And I'll never forget a few years back realizing for the first time that It's a Wonderful Life has a very specific political agenda that it's pushing. I'd never realized it. There's no doubt. It's not like a subtext. You don't have to dig for it. There's no doubt which party George Bailey would vote for and which party Mr. Potter would vote for. There's no doubt where George Bailey and Mr. Potter would come down on Occupy Wall Street. It's very clear. Their, their statements are like taken straight from the party platforms at various places. It's not something you have to dig for. It's very clear, overt, obvious, and yet I had seen it 15 times without ever realizing it. Now, the point isn't, you know, you, maybe you agree with the political platform, maybe you don't. You can probably enjoy the movie the same either way. The point is just that I was going to the movie looking for this kind of feel-good phenomenon and was missing the message of what was actually happening because of the familiarity. I think the same thing kind of happens with the the Christmas narrative as well. I mean, if that can happen with a 65-year-old American film, then how much more with a 2,000-year-old Christmas narrative? So we're going to try to fight against that tonight. We're going to try to resist that pull toward this kind of feel-good place and... I know some of you are thinking, rolling your eyes, oh, come on. If there's ever time for feel-good, it's Christmas Eve. I mean, don't you know this is what we all came for? Like, just give us a break. Deliver the goods. Um, But I I would counter, 
if there's ever a time for getting to the root of what Jesus is all about, it's Christmas Eve. If there's ever a time for figuring out, well, what's the core of this thing? It's Christmas Eve. So God with us are the three words I want to focus on tonight. This phrase, God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to look at, turn it like a diamond, look at it from, from three different angles, emphasizing one of the three words. So God with us, first God with us, second God with us, and then third and finally God with us. So first, God with us, God with us. Most of you are probably aware that of the three billion or so people that are going to be celebrating Christmas over the next 24 hours, a uh, majority of them, believe that Jesus was more than just a, a prophet or a great moral teacher or religious leader. The majority of them actually believe that Jesus was God come down. Um, and, you know, that's either it's true or it's not. It's either true historically, factually, or it's kind of just a, a legend that's, that's grown up over time. Most people, most people that are celebrating Christmas believe that. And, you, you know, every person kind of has to ask for themselves, well, okay, is there, is there something to this or is it just kind of all part of the, the hoopla? I cannot convince you in 20 minutes that it's true. I, I mean, I guess time isn't really the issue. I couldn't convince you as long as I had. I couldn't convince you that it's true. What I can do is make a couple of, of quick observations. First observation is that Jesus himself claimed to be God. You see, all throughout the Gospels, these self-referential statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you've seen me, you've seen God. He's always saying it, but perhaps even more important than what he's saying is what he does. The the gospels are presented to us in the form of a narrative and you know the first rule of good writing is show don't tell. So and you don't say, you know if you're writing a story you don't say Billy was a mean boy. You tell a story about Billy stealing his little brother's lunch and then you kind of figure it out for yourself. And you're a lot more convinced than you would be if somebody just came out and said it. And that's what the gospel writers do with Jesus and his divinity, the same thing. So like a couple of weird things, the first of which is he's always forgiving people's sins. He's forgiving people's sins. Now, if, if Jim punches Joe in the nose and I walk up and say to Jim, Jim, I forgive you, Jim and Joe are both going to turn and punch me in the nose. Why? Because what right do I have? What right do I have to inject myself and say, I forgive you? And here Jesus is saying to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven, or saying to the woman at the well, your sins are forgiven, the woman caught in adultery. What gives him the right? What gives him the right to say that? It it's only makes sense if, you, if he is it's based on this premise that he's God. And that's not a later addition, a later interpretation. Even at the time, the, his contemporaries were saying this to him. They said, where do you go around forgiving people's sins for? Who do you think you are? Only God has the right to forgive sins. And Jesus just kind of says, well, and just leaves it. So he forgives people's sins. Another thing is, anytime an angel shows up in the Bible, you see people generally hit the deck. They kind of go to their face just because the presence of the angel is so powerful that they're overwhelmed. So when an angel appears to Daniel or to John, they're just always on their face. And what does the angel say? The first thing the angel says is, get up. Get up. I'm a creature just like you. I'm not worthy of your worship. I may be a more brilliant creature. I may be a lot brighter, but I'm not worthy of your worship. Get up. And yet Jesus, the people fall on their face to worship him, receives it, accepts it, doesn't correct them. Thomas falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus receives it. So in his words and in his actions, Christ claims, Christ himself claims to be God. It's one observation. Another observation 
is that his earliest followers, for some reason, believed him. Um, there's over the last couple of decades, there's been this renewed interest in the quest for the quote-unquote historical Jesus. You know, who was this guy, this Palestinian rabbi, before people started worshiping him? And what makes that question almost impossible to answer is that people started worshiping him immediately. In the first generation, they started, well, this wasn't something that grew up over a couple of centuries, over generations of followers. They started worshiping him immediately. And so the question that faces anybody trying to figure out who he was is why did his earliest followers start worshiping him? Why did that first generation start worshiping him? And you say, well, well, what's really the big deal? I mean, isn't that the way that a lot of religions get started? You know, they, they worship the founder. And what makes Jesus' situation unique is that his, he had a particularly tough audience. So he's in the context of first century Judaism. The, the central tenet of Judaism is God is one. It's monotheism. This isn't, if, if this was Eastern religion, pantheism, this idea that the God force is kind of in everything and different people can have a stronger or lesser dose of it, fine, no big deal. Or if it's polytheism, if it's the Greeks and the Romans, this idea that the, the gods can come down and kind of uh, disguised as human beings, no big deal. But the central tenet of Judaism is God as one. These were not people that were naturally receptive to the idea. And not only because of their religion, but also because the people that led the movement in the first century were the people that had lived with them. They weren't people that followed them from a distance. They were people that had lived with them for the last three years. If I wanted to convince, start convincing people that I was God, I would not start with my family. It would be a dead end. They've got way too much evidence to the contrary already. I would not start there. I would start with people that had seen me from a distance. If you want to convince people you're God, you start with you know, the people that have seen you on TV, the crowds, the people, you can, if you can hold them at arm's length. That's the way to do it. But whatever you do, don't let them live with you. Don't let them see you up close. You get the people that are saying he's God, that are worshiping him, that are laying down their lives, are the people that have seen him up close, the people that have lived with him. So the first aspect of Christmas, of this God with us, is the God part. God with us. God with us. He can't prove to you that it's true. A couple of observations related to it. But what I can say is it's pretty key to the whole thing. Christmas kind of collapses without it. It's kind of an empty shell without it. And the question is, have you wrestled with it the same way that those earliest followers did? Have you made yourself come to terms with it, come to an answer, rather than just kind of leaving it as a question on the shelf that you can deal with later? So first, God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. Second, it means God with us. And what's interesting about Jesus is comparing him to every other time God shows up and interacts with human beings in Scripture prior to Christ. So God comes to Job as a whirlwind. He comes to Abraham as this smoking furnace moving through the air. He comes to Moses and the children of Israel as this distant uh, pillar of fire by day and or pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And he, he, when he descends into the tabernacle, it's this big, bright, amorphous cloud that comes down. Distant, dangerous even, untouchable. And not just untouchable in the sense of, you know, you can't quite get your hands on it, but untouchable in the sense of there are serious consequences if you try. So, you know, famously, the, uh, God's presence in the tabernacle, the Jews could not go in, and if they did go in while God's presence was there, they would just die. One day a year, Yom Kippur, they could send one high priest in, and they would send him in with a rope around his ankle so they could drag him out 
in case something went wrong. That's how serious it was. Maybe the best example of this kind of distance is Moses, who is the very closest to God, has the audacity to, to ask God at one point this crazy request. He said, God, I want to see your face. And God says, well, that's not going to happen. Same thing would happen to you if it happened to anybody else. You'd die. But what I'll do is we'll, we'll put you in this gap between two rocks to protect you. And I'll, I'll pass by just in a moment, in an instant, less than a second, and I'll let you see my back, whatever, whatever that means. So he puts Moses in the rock. He passes by. Moses sees his back. Moses comes down from the mountain. And they have to put a veil over his face because the reflection is physically blinding to everybody else in the camp. He's got this veil over his face for a couple of days until the glory fades away. You compare all of that to Christ coming as a baby, and not only is he not untouchable anymore, but he has to be held. He's dependent on human touch for survival. Not only is he not able to be seen anymore, but now he's right there. He's right there in the middle of the room. You can touch him, you can see him, you can hold him. It's a big difference. There's a big change. If you look on the back of your program, this is what St. Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. He's, he's keying in on, on this contrast. and he, He's talking about the same story we were just talking about. He says, We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face. The people's minds were hardened, and to this day the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, the same God, the same God who in Genesis said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light in our hearts, shine in our hearts, so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? He's saying Moses asked to see the face of God and his request was denied. And now that request has been granted, not just to Moses, but to everybody. See the glory of God reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. The veil has been taken away. You can see it. You can touch him. He's with us. Not just God, but God with. And then the question is, well, you know, how close, how near is he to you? Most people know that, that God is there. Most people don't doubt that God is there. You know, there's a few. There's always a, a couple. Um, you know, 90, 95% of people believe that God is there. A few don't, and will always buy their books and listen to their interviews because it's kind of, you know, a curiosity. But most people know that God is there. But is he near? Do you trust him? Do you worship him? Do you rely upon him? And what Christmas means, the meaning of Christmas is now, if you don't, if you're not close to God, now, because of Christmas, post-Christmas, if you're not close to God... It's your fault. It's your fault because he came near. He did his part. He came from heaven to earth. He came to you. He's come near, and now it's up to you to reciprocate. Now it's up to you to take a step toward him. First, Emmanuel means God with us. Second, it means God with us. And third and finally, God with us. God with us. And us is a limited term. It doesn't say God with all. It says God with us. Here is the the narrow exclusivity that people hate about Christianity. There's really no way around it. God with us. One of the more famous lines from the the Christmas narratives in the Gospels is uh, the angels come to the shepherds and they say, 
bring you uh, good news of great joy unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And they say, um, they're leaving and they say, peace on earth to those whom God favors, to those upon whom his favor rests, to those with whom he's pleased. A limited group. Who is this limited group? Who is this us? Who are these people with whom God is pleased, who he favors? Uh, This is something we talk about quite a bit around this church. If you've been around, you're probably sick of, of hearing about it. You know, who's the in crowd? Who who gets in? Who Who is on in, in God's kind of inner circle? And I think it's a, a subject that's worth talking about a lot because if you're going to be drawing lines, you better have pretty clear criteria about kind of who's in and who's out. Unfortunately, Scripture is really clear. What Scripture says is the people who are in, the people who are part of us, are the people who are willing to admit... I, I really don't deserve this. I really don't deserve to be close to you, God. But instead, receive God's presence, receive his power, receive his glory into their life as a free, unmerited gift. You say, well, well you know, what's, it doesn't seem so hard. But it is hard. It is hard for a lot of people. It's hard for a lot of people who kind of have a pride and want to do it themselves. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's my daughter Reese is two and a half. That is her favorite phrase right now. I can do it all by myself. And a lot of people are like that. A lot of people are like that about their moral lives. A lot of people are like that about their success. They believe they're capable. They believe they can do it all by themselves. The angels come to the shepherds and they say, good news of great joy. A savior has come this day. And the shepherds are ecstatic. Why? Because they're shepherds. They needed a savior. There's so many groups of people that the angels could have come to and said, good news of great joy unto you is born this day a Savior. And those groups of people would have said, what do you mean good news? That's insulting. I don't need a Savior. Who told you that I need a Savior? It's not good news. You just insulted me. I was reading this week uh, about the life of Joan Crawford, the movie star of the 30s and 40s. And it's this classic American dream story. She really... Um, pulled herself up by her bootstraps and kind of clawed her way to the top. Didn't have any um, real, you know, lucky breaks or, or benefactors or anything. She just did it all by herself. Um, and she was really at the top of the, the industry for for a good run and then um, had a couple of flops and then got labeled box office poison and then kind of declined and her career ended somewhat in disgrace and she became a recluse um, toward the end of her life. And there's this, this famous story about Joan Crawford on her, her deathbed. Her housekeeper, her maid, starts praying for her out loud. And, and Joan Crawford says, damn it, don't you dare ask God to help me. She still thought, even at the end, she could do it by herself. She'd done it. She'd gotten that far. She'd gotten that far by herself. She'd done everything up to that point by herself. She didn't need God's help to get the rest of the way. Most people aren't quite that bold, quite that self-assured, quite that defiant in the face of God. But neither are most people able to get to this place of being able to fall on their knees and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Come into my life. Receive me just as I am. Most people are kind of stuck somewhere in the mushy middle. And you don't have to stay stuck there. You don't have to stay in the middle. You, know, you can get over your pride. You can get over your doubt. It's possible. People have done it. But you have to try. You have to kind of put yourself out there. You have to, you have to make an effort. 
God with us, but now it's your turn. And you have to be willing also, God with us, you have to be willing to be associated with this, this group of people that needs a Savior. Uh, I think that, that most New Yorkers think of religious folk as mostly poor, uneducated, you know, unsophisticated, emotionally needy, social outsiders. And to those charges, I would plead guilty, 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 guilty. I mean, that's the crowd. It's a sorry bunch. The in crowd with God is a sorry bunch. So for part of the, the hang-up about admitting you need a Savior is all of a sudden you have to start hanging out with all these other people that admit they need a Savior too. They're not quite as, as cool as the people that think they can do it by themselves. The question is, you know, this is the question for Joan Crawford. Did what got you this far, is, are you confident that's going to get you the rest of the way home? Are you confident that what got you here is what, what's going to get you where you need to go? People that aren't confident in that say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast my lot with God. I'm going to put my faith in a Savior. An interesting contrast to, to Joan Crawford's deathbed experience is uh, John Wesley, the founder of the, the Methodist Church, a great pastor. On his deathbed, first he was, he's holding the hands of his loved ones and saying, farewell, farewell. And then, and then he whispers, the best of all is God with us. And then he raises his hands, you know, with a little bit of strength that he has left and, and shouts as loud as he can in his feeble voice, the best of all is God with us. He believed it. He not only believed it, but he founded his life upon it. He built his life upon it. And it's possible to do that. It's possible to do that. But you have to, you have to take this step of faith. The best of all is God with us. What will you say when it's your turn? I know that's kind of a morbid question for, for Christmas Eve, but there's a, uh, it's kind of a traditional Christmas question for Christmas Eve, actually. There's a good, good precedent for this in the popular literature, not just of thinking about death on Christmas Eve, not just it's a wonderful life, but also it's a, Chris, uh, a Christmas carol and lots of other examples, too. What will you say? What will you say when it's your turn? Wh- whose response will your response be more like? What will your life be founded on at that point? It's possible. It's possible to put your faith in the baby in the manger who grew up and died for the sins of mankind and paved a smooth road to God. It's possible, but you have to take a step. So let's pray. God, we thank you for coming at Christmas. We thank you for removing the veil, for showing your face to us, for being a God that can be seen, for being a God that's not distant, but rather a God that is with us. God, we know that there are certain requirements to coming to you. We know that we have to lay down our recommendations and our references and our credentials, and we have to admit to being nothing more than a human being who's made a lot of mistakes we have to ask humbly for your help. And God, I ask that tonight, by your spirit, you would empower us to do that. With our heads still bowed, if this, I'm just going to pray in another prayer, and if this applies to you, you can just pray this in your heart along with me. God, that you know that at various points I've believed in my own self-sufficiency, that I believed in myself more than I believed in anything else. You know that I've doubted you know that I haven't necessarily been wanting to associate with the people that 
rely upon you. God, tonight, I want to confess these things to you, and I want to ask you to take me. I want to ask you to come into my life. I want to give my life to you. I want to spend my life serving you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.